Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You would never know by looking at my guest on today's show that he grew up homeless as part of a religious doomsday cult. I grew up very poor in a big family. We were on food stamps. We would dumpster dive for food. A lot of people find it hard to believe that I was ever that poor. I look like I was conceived at an Ivy League acapella concert. <laughs> Shibby doo wop, my dad owns every university. Shibby doo wop, what is adversity? <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Moses Storm, who puts his own very unique upbringing on display in his upcoming HBO Max special, Trash White. Moses has toured with Conan O'Brien and appeared here and there on TV over the years. But his first hour-long special is a major leap forward in his career, and he rises to the occasion delivering one of the most confident and innovative debuts I've seen in a long time. So I was really excited to have him on the podcast to talk about his wild journey to becoming a stand-up comic, how Bob Saget ended up making a bizarrely timed cameo in his new special, and so much more. Whether you are familiar with his comedy or not, I think you are really going to enjoy this conversation. So here's me with Moses Storm. I feel like we've known each other for years now because we've been um, working on getting this uh, <laughs> recording to work for for the past uh, you know twenty minutes or so. Um, but I think it really I, is uh, like the IKEA test of a relationship is is can you get through the Zoom technical difficulties? It's really a per- precursor for the rest of the exactly. conversation. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this. I have to tell you, I I just got a chance to watch your new special, uh, Trash White, and was just really blown away. I thought it was phenomenal, just both the material and just the whole look and feel and and just how innovative it felt. Um, So first of all, congrats on that. I mean, we're we're about a week away from the premiere as we're talking. Um, How are you feeling? Uh, So nervous, like embarrassingly nervous about it. And uh, yeah, I I really wish I was one of those people that was like, I don't care. (laughs) Uh, I don't care what people think. Um, I'm just going to do one mysterious post about it in lowercase letters. I am not that cool. <laughs> I, I care so much and want people to like this uh, a lot and really hope that people watch it. Yeah, I mean, it's so, it's a big deal. It's your, you know, your first hour long special. And I think it's, it's that's a big deal for for any comedian. But, you know, for you, it's a it's both a long time coming and incredibly personal um, in terms of what you're putting out there about yourself. And I know that, you know, you've talked about your personal story before, but this is kind of putting it all in one place as a story. So um, was that something that you thought about? You're sort of using this to introduce yourself and maybe even put this this story that you're telling behind you in a way? Yeah. Yeah, it was really important for me. I think the whole special is essentially about forgiveness. Again, if you're a cool artist, you don't give away what it is. But it's all <laughs> about forgiveness. And 
uh, yeah, I did spend a lot of time being angry at my parents for our unusual upbringing. Yeah, and I mean, I think the whole... but we should uh, give some background on that for people who you know who haven't gotten a chance to watch it yet. Can you can you describe your very unique um, upbringing a little bit? Yeah, so we grew up well below the poverty line in a Greyhound bus, meaning my parents purchased a bus for no money, and which is scary. Who's giving away a bus? Who's trying to get rid of a bus <laughs> yeah. that fast? And uh, they were traveling missionaries for a religion that they helped make. Um, I would say cult, but the cult has gotten this new definition because of Netflix documentaries and HBO documentaries of almost something that's successful that people are duped into. But we had a lot of trouble getting people to sign up. <laughs> this is like where the nerves for the special comes. It's like, oh, I've seen big things not work out before <laughs> in a very real way. You put everything into it and uh, no one showed up. There was three families in the cult religion slash adults making bad decisions. <laughs> and everyone was in a bus and we would street preach, meaning we would go outside of a concert, farmer's market or flea market, anywhere there's a gathering of people, and we would be those people with the large neon signs yelling fire and brimstone. So you want to catch people's interest right away. So the younger the kids are that are yelling, the more ideal for the message. So it'd be two years old being like, you're headed for hell <laughs> uh, to adult, which is adorable and terrifying. Yeah. I mean, the image that you bring up sort of uh, is reminiscent of the Westboro Baptist Church, which I think is a lot maybe darker than even than what you guys were were up to, and more successful in some ways because um, they have you know a bigger following. Was that something that you were aware of at the time, or is that something you kind of learned about later and and related to it all? That is something I'm deeply ashamed of. Is when I see, I mean, Westboro Baptist is a hate group for sure. It's hate, it's attention grabbing, and they don't care really about anything besides their own success, but. This very embarrassing and really just awful thing happens when I see stuff like that and they get news coverage or you, you see these cult documentaries where people are, are crying and say, oh, my life got ruined. I got duped to this cult. I lost all my money. And you're supposed to have that reaction of like, that is messed up. That should not have happened. And the knee jerk reaction, the first thing is like, oh, damn it. How'd they get all those people? They got news coverage. I'm, <laughs> I'm legitimately jealous yeah. of, of their success that they were able to ruin people's lives. And then, you, of course, you get to that point. But if I'm being honest with myself, the first thing is like, I can't believe they convinced everyone to wear maroon and they started a militia <laughs> in yeah. Oregon. That is great. To, to the organization it takes to poison someone, <laughs> one of your members, just the, the level of cooperation that we never had mm, growing yeah, up. Yeah. Uh, so you you take these experiences and you're turning them into comedy in your new special. Was it, was it funny at all at the time when you were a kid and, and growing up in this or did it take quite a while for it to become funny to you? Uh, no, it wasn't funny. I, I thought I was going to hell uh, maybe until I was 16. Of like, I, I, I'm not saved and I will have an agony of suffering. But not, not to um, falsely sell this. We don't really get into that in the special, kind of end on something like that. But the special is, is essentially the aftermath of the cult. And really that, what you were talking about, the most relevant years of that is because they were 
fringe members of society in a cult, uh, meaning I never got to go to school. There was no job that was held. There was no relationships with family that you could back up on. We lived in pretty extreme poverty for the time. So it's about that time. And the cause and effect is, is of course, the religion and the street preaching. But where I picked the story up is my dad has, has left. He stopped paying child support. And they're both essentially trying to recreate their 20s that they missed out on. And unfortunately, they have five human beings that they're in charge of that they're supposed to take care of. So I spent all this time and even my earlier stand-up kind of criticizing them and uh, mainly my mom. And then finally, when it was time to put a special together, when I got the opportunity, it was about creating a full show. And when you create a full show that has an arc and callbacks, you can't make one-dimensional characters like you can in a, in a, in a five-minute set. You could be like, my mom's crazy. She was roller skating and pregnant. But if you're doing a full show, you have to give these, these characters in your life, you have to give them their full story, uh, just, to, just to, in my personal opinion, to hold people's interest and to make it a full show. So just in setting up the show of like, well, yeah, I can't just have a villain in a vacuum being terrible for no reason. I had to ask myself these questions of why did my mom dye our hair blonde so no one would know that she's not a natural blonde? Why were we, why was she always shoplifting growing up and constantly getting caught? Why did I have to go to cheer camp yeah. when I could have just gone to basketball camp? Uh, yeah, why were we dumpster diving for food? And when I started doing that work, which is very hard to do mid-pandemic at comedy clubs, you can't really <laughs> like, here's my thesis. Um, I, I inadvertently came around to uh, actually actually forgiving her. Yeah. And I mean, in, and, you know, thinking, I think all comedians who talk about their family or talk about people in their lives have to, you know, think about how is this going to be received? But I think there's an extreme version of that for you in this. So was that also something, you know, knowing that your family was going to probably see this? That's the other pit in my stomach is I don't know how they're going to react. I mean, less my mom, I've given her a heads up that, you know, hey, this is this is a thing the dossier is dropping. <laughs> but it was very polite and left out details that are people will sometimes ask, like, is that story made up? And the things that are changed around and bent for a story is a essentially sugarcoating of things of and that's partly to protect. I don't think we should have to live in that trauma and keep bringing that up when everyone's an adult and they're trying to start their own life. They're legitimately sorry and remorseful about it. So there's no reason to keep dragging them. But the other thing is, it is my story. So it's like, yeah, I, I, I want to tell these things. I want to. So it's, it's writing that line of not exposing people that did not sign up to be in the entertainment industry. Don't want people that their coworkers at Best Buy being like, hey, so you were dumpster diving growing up? What's that about? Your mom aggressively tried to get you on America's Funniest Home Videos as a job? <laughs> so I am nervous about their response, and I don't want to embarrass anyone or uh, expose them. And I think the biggest problem with my siblings is sometimes my older brother will be like, well, why, if you're going to tell the story, why why leave out the, the, the more aggressive details? Um, and that's just because I'm not talented enough as a comedian yet. Yeah, well, I was going to say there, there, there could be things that are so dark that you want to sugarcoat it because there's just no way to make it funny, 
you know, in that sense. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've definitely tried. Um, I'm, the show is a product of the level of comedian that I'm at, where I'm mainly doing comedy clubs. So I can't do what you can do in a theater and you can do in these small punk rock clubs really have these moments of silence and bring it down, bring it back up. Uh, what what you have to do is you have to sell chicken wings and drinks. So <laughs> every 30 seconds, there better be a laugh and there's drunk people. So it's very hard to invest in that stuff that's a little darker. You can't be talking about child abuse while someone's asking for Blue Ranch. Yeah, I mean, the, the show is very theatrical in a lot of ways, though. I mean, just the way it, you staged it. And can you talk about that a little bit and, and why you wanted it to have the look and, and feel that it does? Yeah, it is an honest thing of, oh, I, I want this show to exist. I would watch this. So what would I watch? Because, I don't know, I've been doing this long enough where I've had things that haven't worked out and I've seen people do well and then... You, you try to claw and get back up on the mountaintop and fall. And, and uh, I was just trying to make something that I would be proud of and that I just wanted to see. And that meant making a full visual show. I don't think comedians really think about the visual aspect. Without, there's a few exceptions, but it's usually a, you know, a curtain, three purple lights, and a jib shot that's swooping in on dating jokes. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, when I got the opportunity, I was like, well, let me build uh, a set that I, that I just want to exist. Let me, if it's a visual medium, why aren't we using things like multimedia? Why aren't we using a projector? If you have documentary footage, why cut out of a special and leave the room, play it in the room for that audience and, and get those reactions. So I went to them. They were like, can you not? That sounds expensive. <laughs> and I was like, don't worry. It's it's all trash. I'll, I'll circle the streets of L.A. and I'll you were find like, I, all I this have, trash. I have experience uh, with this. <laughs> yes. we. Are, I have an expert dumpster diver, which is a weird thing. Uh, and it helped with the forgiveness process is cruising the streets of L.A. looking for junk to pick up <laughs> that I needed. I was like, oh, that's essentially what my mom was doing. Yeah. So it's actually, uh, it's real junk on the stage, not, you know, stage junk. This is not stage junk. So you, you kind of at the early in the special, you acknowledge that you don't look like someone who grew up in extreme poverty. Um, and it's also something that you, I saw you do in your first Conan appearance. So I grew up on welfare. My mom was a single parent, five kids, no child support. And a lot of people find that hard to believe that I was ever that poor. I think it's because of the way I look. Like, I look like everything just, like, worked out. <laughs> in fact, I look like the guy in the movie that yells, don't you know who my father is? <laughs> and I legitimately don't. I know who he is, but not, like, who he is. Is that trying to get ahead of the sort of white privilege pushback that you are imagining might come with with some of this stuff yeah uh less about the privilege it just more it's it was cringe when someone like everyone's first joke because i look like harry potter if harry potter <laughs> was a soccer but but you i and i i always hated doing that i tried to avoid that but we can't help as humans see the person and judge them immediately by the way they look and if you're talking about dumpster stuff, uh, that's this is probably a smarter way to put that. But if you're talking about, you know, 
growing up living in the in the in, in a bus and and eating from the dumpster and if he doesn't match it needs to be acknowledged so the first thing is like well here's essentially the conflict i look like this uh even though my life was this so it's more just a thing so i could say the things i really want to say and less of like trying to get out in front of white privilege because i mean make no mistake white privilege is a very real thing the fact that i was able to have never been to school uh, could barely read or write 18, still struggle with it today, and then essentially weasel my way into a career. Sure, some of it's hard work, but a lot of it is just like, ah, we trust you. You have a symmetrical face and clear skin. There, There is that. So it's because I grew up with very poor people and they're there is varying levels of success. It's harder for certain people that are that don't look like this. Like, uh, what did I say in the special? Some sort of King Joffrey or something. <laughs> yeah, I feel like this this special and your and your material as a comedian is not especially political, but there is sort of a underlying political message to this um, to this special in a way um, about you know what we owe to our other you know <laughs> citizens um, in terms of uh, support and all that. So is that something that you? that you thought about sort of how much you wanted to infuse the the politics of of this into it? Yeah, I I, I think the, the, the politics has never engaged me because I just know what it feels like to be poor. And if you grow up legitimately poor in this country, you know that these systems don't work for you. These are uh, lies. There is someone, you know, Clinton came in. I think that was probably the biggest upgrade is that welfare got uh, easier to, to acquire and that's the extent of our political knowledge growing up. So you just know what it feels like to be poor. And yes, there's all these programs for you, but they're all done with a very condescending attitude of you're so welcome. The the terms that we use for poor people. So it's less about a political statement and more just like, hey, can we just respect each other? Just because someone had a different life than you and they have way less can we still treat poor people with dignity because like I'm I grew up like that and I'm here now. Can we just that's all I'm asking for now that I have a platform because, yeah, it was hard to be hungry some nights. And yeah, it was hard to not know where we were going to live and constantly getting evicted from places when we lost the bus. But really what I felt and what I carry to this day is that that condescending attitude. That's what really stung to me is the, is the way you are talked down to, pandered to, and held up as a prop for politicians sometimes. And um, yeah, it was just about that. It's, so it's coming from a feeling place rather than here's some legislation that needs to, to change. And it's just something we could do now. Just like, yeah, it's just, you know, don't, don't be a piece of shit to <laughs> a poor person. Yeah. Um, I was also struck, you know, speaking of the words that we use by the story that you tell about someone coming up to you after a show and telling you that the word homeless was offensive and that you shouldn't be using it. Um, what Can you tell that story and, and sort of how you reacted to yeah. it? Yeah. I have had never had a problem with someone complaining, and I'm not one of these anti-PC yeah, comedians yeah. <laughs> that's middle-aged and has a special, like, triggered much. <laughs> it's, I, I I hate that stuff so much. If someone's saying, hey, this word hurts my feelings, hey, can you just not say it? Then, yeah, that's it. That's it. It's another respect thing, okay? You know, no one, I, I you know, oh, that's a trans person. That's fine. So just say the word. You learn new words all the time. So it was never that. It was someone coming from 
privilege that has not had an experience coming up and saying, oh, I essentially I learned this new word and someone told it to me and corrected me. So now I'm going to correct you. So just in, and I, I can't remember what I was doing. I was talking about the story where the first girl's phone number I got, we were going through her garbage. It was like a high school girl. We just got evicted from a one bedroom apartment and then we were living in a garage and then we were about to lose the garage. Um, and I was, yeah, talking about home. And then a woman came up to me after a show, which is, you know, very white woman, uh, very just rich. Like, you know, they just smell rich. <laughs> Their cells smell rich. And I was like, okay, so just so you know, like, you, you, so you are homeless for that, that period of time. But um, I just, I don't think you should say homeless. You know, it's just, it's, it is a derogatory term now. <laughs> and uh, you should use unhoused. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But internally, I was like, well, yeah, well, sorry, I bummed you out with my own personal experience. I didn't know that was a thing. I think if someone's talking about their own thing, it's, it's, it's their story. So they can say it however they want. And I, I, yeah, I don't think that's it goes back to the condescending attitude towards poor people. You want a roof. When you're on the street, you want a roof, you want security, you don't want a jazzy new name. Yeah, yeah, that's not help. That's not going to help you. Suck. You know, it would be freezing cold right now, but uh, I'm unhoused. <laughs> that helps. It's that warm feeling. So it it just points to less about someone correcting me in anti PC culture, but exactly what the problem is is that we don't need we don't need more condescending programs. We don't need new names. It's just it's just a respect thing. It's just a mutual respect for human beings. If she was like I was home I was homeless and that that offended me, then absolutely. Yeah, never again. But it was just <laughs> Yeah, like well that's not the issue. Coming up, Moses explains how decades old footage of Bob Saget ended up featuring prominently in his new special, and how he reacted when he heard the tragic news of the comic's sudden death. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. We have had so many incredible stand-up comics on this show over the years, including Gary Gullman, Tig Notaro, Patton Oswalt, Roy Wood Jr., and more. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to those episodes and everything else from our free archive, and you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Moses Storm. 
you mentioned before briefly the America's Funniest Home Videos uh, bit that is in your special. And I mean, that has quite a, taken on quite a new meaning, you know, this past week um, with Bob Saget dying so unexpectedly. So can you can you explain a little bit, a bit about how he ended up, you know, playing this this role in your in your special? Yeah, I, I get why people do it and people mourn. It's a respect thing uh, when a celebrity dies and they'll post a Getty image of them and be like, this person meant to lie. There, like, were a lot okay. of, there were a lot of selfies with Bob Saget this past week from comedians. Yeah, it's like, oh, you found a way to make this about you, how sad you are. Uh, that was the first time I probably posted something since MF Doom died uh, of someone that Bob's legitimately meant a lot to us growing up. Essentially, Bob Saget in our heads was picking the videos in his home and giving us his 10 grand. So my mom, as a job, aggressively tried to get us on America's Funniest Home Movies. Uh, And so we'd rent a camera every single week and two six-hour tapes. And she would just brainstorm, try to come up with bits with the kids of like, what? And it wasn't like this like fun thing. It happens now with parents on YouTube. There's all these like Ace Family uh, but really a pioneer in that. But but we were submitting him and she would get angry. And, um, you know, rightfully so. It's hard to do this. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and try to get us on the show and keep submitting tapes because it was a cash cow. It was a way out. So growing up in my head, Bob Saget was the richest person <laughs> alive. He was. I was like, he probably has a million dollars. <laughs> Could you imagine such an amount? And yeah, I've always had this this very warm feeling towards him. So that was one that if I could make it about me, uh, yeah, it hit me really hard. I was like, oh God, that is awful. Because uh, there was a part of me that was hoping to meet him after this. Yeah, I was wondering if you if you ever got a chance to to meet him or tell him, you know, what he what he meant to your family. No, uh, we were for the past year. I've been like dosy doing with him at different uh, comedy clubs. It would be like next week, Bob Saget or Urinal. And then I was in West Nyack, New York, in a mall. And there's an improv above a go kart, an indoor go kart place. So things are going all right. And. <laughs> Uh, someone had, had told Bob Saget that, um, that he, uh, that, that I had played the video and was talking about him the week before. And then he sent me a very, uh, nice message and was, yeah, very inviting about it. And, um, yeah, cause I, I don't say anything mean about him. There's some light ribbing, but yeah. And I even ran it in my head of like, yeah, could this come off as mean in any way? Cause I do want to meet him. Yeah. <laughs> and there was even an idea and I don't care about blowing it, but, um, there was an idea to have him at the end in the credits uh, present a check for, for ten grand, <laughs> like one of those big would, publishers clearinghouse checks. Yeah, it would have been a nice, sweet moment. But um, I didn't have enough money for Bob Saget <laughs> at the time. But now I wish I, I would have put more into that, of course. But um, yeah, he was someone that meant a lot to us growing up and was uh, represented a way out and represented... Uh, a show that we were allowed to watch. We weren't allowed to watch a lot of TV, essentially no TV growing up, but we were allowed to watch that one show because it was research. It was technically a job of like, okay, what works? Okay, if you do a hit in the nuts video, then you just get put in a montage. You don't want to be in a montage. You want your own video, so we need dialogue in this. <laughs> it needs to be a big stunt. So 
that was an escape for us outside of all the cults, religion stuff, and just uh, poverty as we were allowed to watch that show under the guidelines of research. So uh, yeah, that's why in my head, he was the most famous person and someone that uh, informed what I do now. Yeah. Um, I'm very curious how you ended up making a transition from this life that you had growing up into comedy. Um, Cause it, you know, I'm sure it was not a straight line. Um, did you, did it, did it serve as sort of an escape at all from from this other life and that when you decided to start performing comedy? I always did it. Uh, I was, yeah, I was always making jokes growing up with my siblings just to uh, break a lot of tension. Um, and I don't think anything was ever considered as a job or this could be a job one day because I was convinced that the world was going to end 46 minutes from now. It was like, well, God's going to wipe out the earth, so it doesn't matter. I was like, you should be thinking <laughs> about a career. And um, uh, we, we were very isolated. So we had no friends growing up, just constantly on the road, uh, no, no contact with the outside world. And then our cult leader came into town and essentially gaslit us and was like, why aren't you guys in the workforce? I was about 16 at the time. Uh, you guys should be in the workforce. You should be out there getting a job. Like, well, we thought it was just like jobs are evil and just <laughs> try to live off donations and whatever God can provide. Uh, so I got a job at a grocery store uh, that had purposely had a trash compactor <laughs> I was, because I was like, oh, my mom can't dumpster dive behind the store if there's a compactor. Oh, that's, that was very that smart. Would be humiliated. <laughs> that was the first, first step. Is like, that's why I applied for that job. So I, I got a job there and um, I, I fell in love with the, with the girl, or at least what I thought love was at 16, and then just told her what my life was. It opened up to her a little bit. And just seeing that, my story bounced off of a rational human being uh, who's very sweet. It uh, unraveled everything. It was a deep programming. So then it was like, how do I get out of this? What am I going to do? I can barely read or write. I have almost no social skills. What's the one thing I kind of like? Uh, that is comedy. So I think at the time, stand-up was the dream. It was like, if I could just work in a production office and do stand-up at night, that would be the dream. And I uh, started doing improv because I was too scared to get on stage. And uh, and then, yeah, I just thought of it as a thing of like, oh, I could work at Taco Bell in the day and I could do sets at night. Um, but I think I misspelled a bunch of things at my Taco Bell job application. I didn't get a job. Oh, but you were able to. Have you heard comedians say that? That they. Uh... Have you know when comedians say that of like, this is the only thing I can do? Yeah. Yeah. It's always like, well, no, you could. Yeah. You could work you at Taco Bell. You could have done a million things. Yeah. You really could have. You could. Uh, I, I couldn't work at Taco Bell. So <laughs> this was the only thing that I could do to finer point on that, get us out of the situation, break generational poverty, or just provide for us or have the ego feeling of being able to provide for my siblings now of needing that to be like, I get us out of this, or I can make sure that that our kids don't uh, feel the same way that we did as, as just a selfish thing of trying to like recreate your childhood and do it right. So it was the only thing I could monetize and turn into something that um, that wasn't just going to be on minimum wage forever. It's okay. I grew up poor. That's why, actually, I didn't find out I was dyslexic till way later in life. It wasn't tested for growing up because people just presume that poor people are stupid. In fact, people presume that poor people are stupid so often that when a poor person is not stupid, oh, 
then it's like a whole goddamn movie. <laughs> it's like a whole goodwill hunting where the entire premise is just, could you imagine a world where this piece of shit that mops our floors understood math? <laughs> no, give it every Oscar. <laughs> Did it take a while for you to talk about this stuff in your in your act, or were you immediately talking about you know your own your own story on stage? It took me a while. Yeah, I think I was just like like everyone, just you're a amalgamation of different comedians. I was like, oh, maybe I'm. I would just re-listen to Dimitri Martin albums and be like, maybe it's one-liners. I tried that, and then it wasn't till I discovered Mike Birbiglia of like, oh, you could just tell stories. That feels that feels better. So that was a huge influence. Of course, we'd always secretly watch Conan's show growing up. So that was a sense of humor that I was keen of and, and like that. So I was like, oh yeah, maybe I could do something like that. So it was an amalgamation of all those three people. And then, um, yeah, I, it just tried the one-liners and nothing felt as good as things that were happening in the moment. Uh, some of the stories felt a little bit better. So eventually you you find it. But yes, it took a very long time and was very painful of just uh, dumping your abuse on people. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> you have three minutes at an open mic? This is uh, awful. How do you think the way you grew up affected the way you think about things like money and fame and success now? I'm terrified to spend, I don't, I've, I've, afraid every day that I'm going to end up back there. And I know that I won't spend the money. So what I did is I paid for a good portion of things in the special, uh, because that I could justify of like, that feels good. So yeah, people, there's certain things I wanted. Uh, yeah, I just took that out of the fee, which you shouldn't talk about money. But um, <laughs> still, it was just like, oh, uh, that's, that's how it's manifesting now is I'm just so scared I'm gonna end up there. So the one thing I do spend money on is like, oh, I can put it back into the show. And then later, that'd be an investment for the future. Um, and then the whole special itself is a grift. <laughs> it's exactly what my mom did. I mean, stand up is a is a grift. And the show is a grift. It's it's one thing to say you forgive someone, but then the whole special is you're saying, I'm not going to do these TED Talk moments, those specials are lame, and then you do them. And then you essentially have a PowerPoint uh, <laughs> on, on this. So you're doing exactly that. And that's what my mom would do. That's what I learned from her is that you say exactly what the thing is, and yet you're not going to do, and then you do it. So that was a more interesting way to show forgiveness for me was... Yeah, so I, yeah, I forgive her, but then also look at what you taught me. Look <laughs> at this big old grift. We turned something like this trash stage, we turned trash into something beautiful, into something that works for us. We turned these, these outtakes that never made it on the show, America's Funniest Home Videos, into a funnier video. It's taking all these scraps, taking all these pieces of trash. It's taking my <laughs> no knowledge of, of theses and, and story structure and uh, grifting it into a show. And if it works, then it's like, well, that's the, that's the special. <laughs> that's great. Um, so, I mean, I, I saw somewhere that you said that I mean, you said stand-up was always sort of what you wanted to do, but is but that stand-up might not be what you ultimately like want to be a stand-up for life that you really are interested in in acting and other things. So, what are your now that you've done this hour, done this, you know, told your story? What are your aspirations for for what you you know want to be doing going forward? 
Oh, it's definitely still stand up now because now essentially the whole purpose of the grift and forgiveness is to get to the point where I could talk about the the heavier stuff and then uh, be in the right rooms for that and and hopefully transition away from audience members where it's like 50 percent uh, people are there to see me 50 percent of people are there to be like we heard the club's good <laughs> we, we like the tangy quesadilla and so it's about getting into theaters and and uh hopefully people being familiar with what i do and then building another show in front of them what i mean about stand up being the uh not a forever thing i think when you start to do really well i just of what i've observed and you you start to get money you start to get comfort and it removes you from experience. I don't think stories are happening in first class like they are in coach. You know, a woman with uh, raisins on her sushi wrapped in foil is a thing I saw in the middle seat <laughs> in coach. And I don't think it's the same life. So I think it, money buys comfort. Comfort removes you from experience. So unless you're doing stand up for other millionaires, it's a... Uh, I've just seen countless celebrity specials and just sets of, of you know, complaining about rich people problems. Yeah, yeah. I think we have more million, more like, millionaire, and maybe even close to billionaire special comedians uh, than, than right. ever. Right. But you have a joke about your vacation home. It's time to get out. Yeah. yeah. It's time to get <laughs> out. So I think directing specials is something I've always wanted to do. I've I just thought I have so many pet peeves for uh, for what the comedy special is of just bad tropes that we all fall into. So I'd have so many ideas for, for uh, different comedians special. Every time I see someone, I'm like, oh, I, I know what their special would look like. I have an interesting idea to, to shoot that a little more, you know, a little more visual. So yeah, I just like performing is, is the main thing. So I think if, uh, if the material ever got out of touch, if I was doing too well, I'd have, I'd have to find another way to get that same feeling. So that could be acting, that could be um, sometimes even even directing. But it, yeah, it was just be about trying to stay, I don't know, in touch with your audience. I hope. I might, you may talk to me in a year and I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to keep doing this and complaining <laughs> about my gate in my third house and the gate's too tall. <laughs> Uh, so what I want to do now before we start to wrap up is uh, our final segment called The First Laugh. Um, I want to run through some some firsts from your career and, and see what, what stands out. Um, so first, going all the way back, uh, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard? I know there's you weren't allowed to see too much, but what was something that you did get to see early on that really connected with you? Oh, I think it was the Walker, Texas Ranger clips on Conan. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the watching the show was the the feeling of you can't laugh in church. You can't, you know, it's funny because you're not you're not supposed to because we'd have to, I would secretly record the show at night, turn the TV off, and then I had these like homeschool Christian tapes that I would pretend to watch, but I had taped over uh his show. So I remember watching that and uh, almost getting busted. <laughs> there's probably a laugh before then. I mean, there's so many insane things, but I think that was the first uh, one I remember from, from media outside myself of just how much fun he was having. And it wasn't really the clip. It was everything around it. It was his reaction. It was the things that were happening with the crowd. Uh, yeah, I think that might, at least the first memory. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about Conan in a minute, but first, um, do you remember the uh, first joke that you told on stage that really worked that you could go back to that that was um connecting with people 
Oh, yeah. Uh, here's an out-of-touch story. The first set went really well. I think your first set is supposed to be this terrible open mic experience. Um, there was uh, someone that ran a showcase show. Uh, it was like half actors, half like people that had never done it before. And whatever grift they were in, uh, the, the it was the main room of the Hollywood Improv. And it was packed. Like my friends that came to be like, we're going to see you. Uh, couldn't get in. So it was none of my friends and it was a pure audience of no one that knew me sold out main room show. And yes. And then immediately <laughs> after did uh, actual open mic. It was like, Oh God, it was a harder fall. But you, but, but you I didn't, knew you didn't I needed that first show in front of the, in front of the big audience. No, it went really well because I knew enough to be like, if I, I need an accurate, barometer if I'm going to do this. The, the the running joke is that open mics are so terrible, everyone bombs. So I needed to find out, is this something I could actually do? So I needed a real audience. So I essentially lied to this woman and said I had done stand-up before. And uh, she was like, oh, okay, yeah, you have five minutes. And I was like, uh-huh. Um, <laughs> I had a joke. A lot of, it was, it was, I think it was very bad. It was, Mo, it was like something about my name. My name is Moses Storm. Um, a lot of people get their, I don't mind if you make fun of my name, as long as you get the reference right. People are like, Moses, oh, uh, good luck on your ark. And I'm like, that's Noah. It's a different Bible story. Like, oh, Moses, you got shot the, uh, shot the head at the, at the theater. I'm like, that's Lincoln. I think you're just naming things that are old. <laughs> it was like done in the cadence of a Mike Birbiglia ripoff. And uh, it was a name joke. And that was the first thing that went well. And then it was some crowd work. But that was the first laugh i had gotten on stand-up wow that's yeah that's impressive no i mean lukewarm joke more more comedians than you would think say that their very first show went incredibly well and then the next like 50 were terrible and i my theory is that the first one has to go well or else you never do it again yes that is exactly (laughs) what i was that's a more succinct way of what i was trying to say of like i need an actual barometer i need it to go well i knew i was gonna do it but it had to go good (laughs) Because I don't think I would have done it. If it was an open mic, I would have been like, improv is fun and supportive. <laughs> I like playing for just other people that are interested in improv. That's a good audience. Uh, but yeah, I'm so glad that that went well. I think now in hindsight, if I was to go watch that set, I would claw my skin off the level of cringe. But in my head, it was great. So talking about Conan, um, you know, you made your late night stand-up debut on Conan in 2017. And thinking about these these late night debuts that were such a big deal, you know, in the the seventies and the eighties and on Johnny Carson and, and that they would change your life overnight. And that's, hasn't been true for people in recent years, except I think it actually was kind of true for you, right? It was, uh, yes. And it's the quickest way to alienate yourself from any other comedian, uh, the store, the patio, (laughs) anyone that's, that's jaded, everything happened for me. Like it did in the (laughs) seventies, even so I got, uh, just for laughs. Uh, new faces and then at jfl uh sold the show that like here's your, it was like a show to fx that never got picked up but still was a show which is like a 70s thing and then met the booker from conan jp and said hey you should hey kid you should do the show um, and then it took like a year to set up the special set up the set because you keep going back and forth he's very detailed and then did a set on his show and then yes overnight (laughs) my night changed over life yeah as i said before the boys can even take the court we have to show them what we learned over the summer so we start them off with probably our most 
masculine cheer, which just starts with, all right, boys, show us what you got. Show us what you got, boys, show us what you got. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to cheer someone on as they bully you. <laughs> but it's a lot like if someone shot you and then it was your job to reload their gun for them. <laughs> don't worry, it gets worse. Halftime rolls around, now we have a cheer with some participation built in. We have the cheer that goes, we got spirit, how about you? And then the boys are supposed to go, yeah! And then we go, I can't hear you! And then they go, yeah! Even louder. So I step out, I go, we got spirit, how about you? And then the boys take this opportunity to yell, cheer, queer. And then I have to chime back in with, I can't hear you. It was, it was like, hey, I played the, uh, what was it? Madison, Wisconsin Comedy on State the next day. It was the first time I ever had a sold out crowd. And it, it opened up everything. It was Sometimes it was it was helpful in auditions of like that was the final thing they watched before they decided who they were going to pick. Uh, people knew me for the first time and got a job working with the Team Coco people and and Conan hosting their their live show because he was just about to prep for his tour and he hadn't been out since 2010. So they needed someone to essentially fill in for the live stand up shows so he could work out material. So who was going to host it? So they asked me to do it, and then eventually I got invited to go on tour with Conan, which... Yeah, what, what was that like? What was, is there anything, you know, stories that stand out from touring with Conan? Uh, he is beyond polite to the point where it's scary, where he could be way meaner, and I would still say he's nice. <laughs> um, but I don't know. I mean, it was... I think what stands out is not necessarily a fun story, but something that was very important of him just saying, like, you don't have to keep discounting yourself. Uh, sure, you, these, there's 3,000 people in the crowd, and technically they're there to see me, but after that 30 seconds, after I give you your, your welcome, after I stop shitting on yourself, because I think one of the stops is in Denver. I was like, I'm Moses Storm. Uh, I'm the comedian you go to the bathroom during. Yeah. Because Conan would come out first, and then he would bring up, it was like, Ron Funches, Taylor Tomlinson, myself, and then uh, and then he would close out with the Q&A. So he would go up first to do stand-up, and then we would come out. But he was just like, well, after the 30 seconds wears off of my cosign on you, all those laughs are laughs that you are getting. So essentially, stop beating yourself up. Yeah, that's good advice. Stop. So, yeah. He, other than that, I don't think there was any insane things that happened. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty tame tour. It was just like, uh, what a dream. I mean, to be flying around, you get to leave that night was the thing I was the most excited about as a comedian, is that you get to do the show and you go directly to uh, an airplane. Yeah, it was like a private, private jet kind of situation. Which he does not own, I've been informed. <laughs> it's not we his, all thought it's not he his owned private it. jet. It's not his private jet. They just lease it and it's still like, ooh, this is expensive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yes, he was, uh, that was insane. So as a comedian, I was like, oh my God, you don't have to spend a night in Syracuse, New York. You don't have to go back to the hotel. You could just leave. <laughs> so over the feeling of a private jet and club sandwiches being passed out, it was just that feeling of like, you get to do the show and leave. What a dream. <laughs> 
Um, I usually ask uh, comedians about the first time meeting a comedy hero. I don't know, maybe in your case, it was Conan. Um, but I don't know if there's anyone else that comes to mind as someone who you have met that really kind of uh, blew you away, the, the fact that you were meeting them. I am 100% on his side now, and I 100% get it. And I think I would say something way worse, given the same question. But I worked at an after-hours nightclub called Avalon, where I would work from 9 p.m. So I could do sets before, open mics are like 6, and then it would work till 10 a.m. the next day. Essentially an illegal overnight <laughs> shift as a busboy, which meant uh, I would pour sawdust on vomit and sweep it up. Now, that is also a performance venue where Mike Birbiglia was performing... Uh, my my girlfriend's boyfriend and I my older brothers told me about him and I was uh, the biggest fan of his and I got the worst advice from the in my opinion the best comedian so he left his accident report what show is this might be sleepwalk with me he left the accident report uh, that he was bringing on stage on the stool and I was just around like cleaning up dishes. And then he asked me, I was like too afraid to ever talk to him. I was like, Ugh, legitimately starstruck. And so he's backstage after the show. And he was like, oh, could you go get that, that uh, the paper I left up there? The accident report thing? I was like, yeah. So then I was like, come on, just work up the courage. You have to say it. You have to say it. I had never done stand up before this, this time. I was just like doing improv. Uh, so I gave him the paper and I was like, uh, how I want to do what you do. Do you have any advice for someone that wants to be a comedian? Which you shouldn't do. The The advice for anyone, anyone that hits you up online is like, you just have to go do it. You have to go bomb at an open mic or lie to a woman <laughs> in a sold out improv show. Uh, so he gave me, I, I, I want to talk to him again. It just to, to be like, what was that? But I totally get it. I was like, oh yeah, that's... um. <laughs> He said, you should watch clips of Seinfeld talking about stand-up and then just watch clips of Seinfeld. And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thinking that there was a second part to yeah, it. but that was it. But that was it. Of like, if you have any advice for someone who wants to do what you do, he said, watch like YouTube videos of Seinfeld talking about stand-up. Uh, did, did you go do that? In hindsight, it is good advice. In my head, I had no idea what to do with that info. <laughs> I was expecting something like, you know, buy a notepad, write down things that, that you think are interesting. It was just watch videos of Seinfeld. I mean, in my head, I'm like, well, yeah, of course. He was after a show. Some busboy <laughs> yeah, comes up yeah. to you. It was like, I want to do what you do. <laughs> watch Seinfeld. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> watch something that's not me. Watch, yeah, watch Seinfeld videos. So I had no idea what to do with that info. So... At the time, it was bad advice, but the real advice is you should just go do stand-up <laughs> and be invested in it. Yeah. Well, it'd be funny if now, if like any busboy comes up to you and asks, you just say, you know, just watch- Watch uh, clips of Mike Birbiglia. Yeah. That's what exactly. I'm going to do. Yeah. <laughs> you should watch, not even <laughs> his stand-up, just them, videos yeah. of him talking about stand-up. Yeah. It's not, that's actually not the worst advice. I mean, he has a, he has a podcast it really where he actually does talk about how to- how to write jokes and it's pretty informative right no in hindsight it totally makes sense and i'm 100 percent on his side and he was so kind to not be like well i don't just do it i don't yeah. know <laughs> uh but yes it was something that in my head i was like what i was i can't do anything with <laughs> yeah, that that's funny so finally uh i like to give comedians a chance to shout out uh other 
comedians or comedy or something that's making you laugh right now. So what's the last piece of comedy that really made you laugh that you, that you want to shout out? Oh man. Oh God. Yeah. This in this editing hole. <laughs> yeah. You can't say your, your own special. That would be uh that would be a faux pas. I had, right. I had one guest. I don't I even did remember like, who it is who said, who told me, answered it with the thing that they just made and i thought that was that's what made them laugh oh i would never say that i hate it i want to reshoot it yeah no (laughs) sam talent s-a-m-t-a-l-l-e-n-t that was the last thing that made me laugh john marco oh and then as far as recommendations everyone should watch roy wood jr's imperfect messenger i was feeling all right about my special and then i watched that after it was like too late to change anything, and I and I was legitimately in a depression for an entire day. <laughs> oh, God. I was like, "Fuck, that is so good." Yeah, he is, incredible. and it's sneaky. It's sneaky because it does. It looks like a Comedy Central special. He really needs to. I think it's the Daily Show hookup. But if I feel like he would be, he would get more recognition if it was shot like the expensive Netflix specials yeah. or HBO. Yeah, special. no, he definitely he does everything with Comedy Central. Um... But yeah, yeah I, but, I agree. He could he could become even more huge um, potentially. But yeah, so he was the first stand-up that I actually got advice from. We were making YouTube videos that were okay quality. And uh, yeah, he was the one that said, you should just go do it. <laughs> um, but yeah, that, that uh, made me feel awful about my special. Well, you should not feel awful about your special. It's, it's fantastic. And uh, I hope everybody gets to check it out. Um, so... Moses, thank you so much for for doing this. This was really, really interesting and it was really fun to talk to you. Thank you, Matt. It was very nice to be on a show that I actually listened to. (laughs) Oh, great. Always like to hear that. Thank you for having me. Yeah. All right. Um, Cool. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you again to Moses Storm for that incredible conversation. His new special, Trash White, is streaming on HBO Max starting this Thursday, January 20th. So definitely check it out. You will not be disappointed. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by ACAST for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.